you're not perfect. I'm here as your encourager this morning. You're not perfect, yet that's God's righteous standard. He demands that we would be perfect. And you don't need Mark to stand on the platform and tell you you're not perfect, right? There's a phrase that will get you in fights or that will stimulate fights. We already know and we we recoil when somebody says to us, you're not perfect, because we stand in front of the mirror, right? Our things come out of our mouth that we don't intend to come out of our mouth. And we remember our actions and we know we're not perfect. Yet according to Scripture, and you see this on the screen, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What do you do with that? How in the world do I become that? Well, we're going to address that issue this morning. How do I hit that standard? But in order to do that, I need to start with prayer because we need God to teach us and show us. So I'm going to invite you to join me. Let's go to prayer first. It's true, Father, you have no rival. You have no equal. We know we're not perfect, and yet we understand that you are. There is no one like you. So we come before you in humbleness, and we ask that you would teach us Guide us, lead us, show us what we need to know more about ourselves and what we need to know more of about you. We pray for that in Jesus' majestic name, amen. When Adam and Eve fell, they were no longer perfect. I know it's an obvious thing, but it needs to be stated. They were perfect, but they're no longer perfect. And God could have, as a result, left them exactly as they were. In that fallen state, he could have left them drenched in their fallenness. He he could have left them covered in their guilt and in their shame. The same is true of Paul. We will read his writings this morning in Romans chapter 10. We'll be looking at what he has to say, but the exact same thing is true of him. On his way to Damascus, God did not have to intercept him. God could have left him exactly as he was, going about his business in his deceived mind, but that God might gain the glory through him, he sweeps in and brings grace to Paul's life. Or what about the two guys we talked about last week? The thieves on the cross, the criminals, one on the left and one on the right of Jesus. Both guys are involved in spewing out blasphemy against Jesus. Even the guy on the right, up to the last moments of his life, is trashing Jesus. Yet in the final moments, God sweeps in that he might show grace and what it really looks like based on a simple confession of faith in Jesus. Remember me, when you come into your kingdom, God promises him paradise. He didn't have to do that, but that he might gain more glory. And mind you, God would have done none of these individuals any injury whatsoever if he left them in their sin. It would be no fault of God because they're already condemned 
already in a condemned state because of the sin. So that any of us are redeemed this morning, any of us are saved is purely of his sovereign grace and mercy. Somebody say amen to that. It's purely mercy on God's part because we're just like them. So that any of us are redeemed is a remarkable work of God. In chapter 10, what you find Paul doing is moving away from the sovereign nature of God that he argued for in chapter 9 about predestination and election, and he moves into chapter 10 and begins talking about your responsibility. Chapter 9 was all about God's role and God's sovereign nature and predestination and moves into chapter 10 talking about, okay, what's my deal in this? What's my responsibility? How do I understand it? Well, this is what we understand. Although salvation is completely the free gift of God and he wants everyone to receive it, it's still our responsibility to receive what he offers. Now, you would think if any people on planet Earth would be ready to receive the free offer of God, it would be the ancient Jewish people. Because day after day, week after week, month after month, millennia of bringing sacrifices to the temple to atone for their sins, they would certainly be ready to say, I'm done with this. I want the free offer that you're bringing. But when Jesus comes, they reject him. So you see on the screen, John 1.11, he came unto his own, his own world, and his own people received him not. And you and I know that to reject Jesus is to reject God's perfect righteousness. So what do you do? If you've got to be perfect, but you're rejecting God's perfection. So that's where Paul starts off in Romans chapter 10. His heart is really heavy about this issue. Go with me to verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for, to God for them, he's talking about Israel, is for their salvation. Because they think they don't need it, right? They think they're perfect. There's no need for salvation if you think you're perfect. And maybe you grew up with grandparents who have said, you're perfect. And maybe your soccer coach said to you, you're perfect. And they gave you participation wards to reinforce that, making you feel really good about yourself. How often does somebody come around and say to you, you're not perfect? Doesn't happen too often. But yet God says you've got to be perfect. And Paul says they're not perfect. And my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is they, they think they're perfect. And they've got a problem here. And if you want to get inside the mind of a first century Jew, you just look at the profile of Paul because he says, I can think just like these people think. I know, I thought like them. There was a time when Paul would have agreed with his entire nation because he opposed Jesus. He considered Jesus a fake, a complete fraud. So this entire understanding that he brings to Romans chapter 10 is driven by this deep, deep longing that he has to bring his nation to Christ. His social circle is messed up. So his heart's desire is for his nation. And I, I want you to notice, especially if you were part of chapter, 10, chapter 9 study about the predestination issue, the issue with predestination makes no difference to him. There's no cold indifference to people who are distant from God. Nobody understands God's sovereignty better than Paul, yet he knows the salvation of these people who stand against Jesus is not impossible. What matters to him is he knows 
He knows people who are far from God who have no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. So he's willing to say, I'm praying for these people. I'm praying that they would understand who Jesus is. I don't know whether or not God elected them, but I'm praying that God would save them. He reminds me of D.L. Moody. You see his quote in your notes, and I want you to see it on the screen. D.L. Moody was overheard after praying one time. He said, God, I've saved all the elect. Would you elect some more? (laughs) That's Paul. That's his heart right here. See, this is not some hopeless plea that he's got going on. He expects God. He believes God wants everyone to be saved. He fully believes that if they would only put their trust in Jesus, they would know salvation too. Just reference this over to Jesus. Remember him on the cross? Remember what we looked at last week that from the cross he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Look with me on the screen at what Matthew recorded, the exact same thing that we looked at last week in Luke 23, 34 also. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Why did God move Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to record that? Well, not just so you would be in awe 2,000 years later and say, wow, look at Jesus' heart. He's amazing. Well, that's a reason. That's a good reason, but that's not the only reason. It's because Jesus expected God to respond. God the Son becomes Jesus the man. And God the Son, as Jesus the man, is hanging on the cross. And he expects God the Father to forgive them. See, Paul's plea here is not a hopeless plea. He's praying that God would move among them. That's why you find him in Romans chapter 1 saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He's already declared that. So for you this morning, for myself, it's a good reminder for us. It is not our responsibility to try and determine who the elect of God are. Our responsibility is to share the gospel, to share, to testify, and to intercede for them in prayer fully believing that God wants everyone everywhere to be saved. He's not willing that anybody would perish. Amen, New Hope? He's not. That's not his desire. Go with me to verse 2. For I testify about them, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. If you're not familiar with the word zeal, it it simply means a, a passion or enthusiasm. But it's very interesting that he starts out by saying, I testify, because he's saying, this is me. I can testify because I've been exactly where they're at. I know what it looks like to have zeal. I thought as they think. His zeal is absolutely notorious. Look on the screen at Galatians 1, verse 13. You have heard of my former manner of life. Skips on. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Passion is really good. I'm not disparaging passion. Passion's powerful. But passion that runs amok, that's like dumping gas on the fire of riots. And and that's disaster. That gets completely out of control. And Paul says, that was me. I was so obsessive. And he identifies himself as like these individuals. I can testify. They've got that same kind of zeal, thinking that they're improving upon God's law by adding their own requirements. So he has to qualify their passion, their zeal. He says, I need to qualify it. They have a zeal without knowledge. That's really the issue going on. Their zeal is like 
a heat lamp that's putting out a lot of heat, but there's no light with it. There's nothing bright about it. It's just intense heat. And I'm really sad to say that that's the issue with many very religious, quote unquote, people who think it's all about ritual. And it's all about doing enough good works and maybe I can make God like me that way. And they think the ritual and the good works will save them. Let me just be really clear about this if you're not clear about it. Passion, ritual, good works never saved a soul from hell. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. It's not about the ritual. So he goes on to say they're struggling with a lack of information. They don't have enough knowledge. Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law there shall be no flesh justified in his sight. Meaning you can't do enough works to be good with God. So he identifies the big issue, the zeal of this nation. It translates into a, a lack of knowledge. They're lacking information and he doesn't mean brain information. They're lacking something else. He goes on to say, they've ignored the righteousness that comes from God. And this morning, I need a volunteer to read for me a passage of Scripture. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17. Would somebody find that? I'm going to ask you to read it for the whole room. I'm just going to ask you to read it really loud in just a minute. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Somebody find that. Here's what's going on. In an attempt to assert their own standing before God, they refuse the righteousness of God. Now, for those individuals living at that time, they would say to Paul, wait a minute, man. If anybody's chasing after the righteousness of God, it's us. Look at the way we're doing things. Look at the way we live. Many people would argue that today. What are you talking about? I, I live this way in such a way that God's got to be happy with me. Paul, you better back that up. Well, let me show you what the righteousness of God is that he's talking about. Who's got Romans 1, 16 and 17? Sherry? Sorry, multiple people. Go ahead, Sherry. Read it really loud, would you? Mm -hmm. Did you guys catch that? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God. He's saying they've rejected the gospel. They've rejected Jesus. So there's a big deal going on here. When he says they're lacking knowledge, they're lacking the knowledge of what the righteousness really is all about. The righteousness of God is Jesus. So Paul's counter-argument is this. As far as fulfilling the law is concerned, blameless, I got that, nailed it. I did all those things, Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the nation of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day. I got that down. I thought like they think when they think that they can do enough good things to earn God's favor. So the Jews had a certain kind of intellectual knowledge, very smart, very brainy, but lacking spiritual knowledge. 
So Hosea 4, 6, all the way back in the Old Testament, you find God talking about this through the prophet Hosea. He says, my people, they're destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And he's not talking about brain information. He's talking about lack of knowing me. So here's a reality check for you, church. You can be really zealous about the things of God and be going to hell. You can be a religious leader. You could be a deacon in a church and be very zealous for the things of God, but not know God and still be headed to hell. Watch how he translates this over into verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, the gospel that Sherry just read about, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. See, they're ignorant of the issue of all issues, God's perfection standard, the perfect standard of righteousness. So I've come to understand there's two types of knowing. There's intellectual knowing, which is very important. It's important to be educated. But there's relationship knowing, and that's what God's talking about here. They're ignorant of God's righteousness, not because they've never been told. They've got the information. They're not lacking information, but they're refusing what they hear because they're so self-confident of their self-righteousness. Robert Murray McShane is 29 years old and living in Europe, and he's on the streets of London in 1830, and he's handing out religious literature, pamphlets, information about Jesus Christ. He died really young. He died at the age of 30, and he was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, and he had traveled the known world at that time, been all the way down to Israel to study. Unfortunately, he died of typhus. But in his late 20s, he finds himself in London. People are walking up and down the sidewalk, passing him by. He's in a pretty prosperous area of London, and a woman of high society, very well-dressed, walks by Robert Murray McShane, and he hands her a literature about how to know Jesus and to be saved. And she looks down her very long society nose at him and says, Sir, you certainly must not know who I am. And he said, Madam, there's a judgment day coming, and it does not matter who you are. Can you speak with that kind of frankness to people? There's a fire in that guy's belly at 29 to be willing to say that to somebody on a sidewalk. Look with me at Scripture, Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That's the relationship knowledge we're talking about. Do you know God or do you just know about God? See, our cause for boasting is supposed to be in his righteousness. And the extreme tragedy of Israel is they had all this information, the direct revelation of God handed to them, and they still stiff-armed him. That exact same tragedy translates over to 2018. Today, we sit in a world in which we have the direct revelation of God. He has revealed himself in nature. He has revealed himself in his written word, and he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, his son. And yet, everyone would say, I'm good. I got this. I don't need that. 
I don't know about you, but I like to learn from other people's mistakes. I started doing that when I was a teenager, trying to study other people so that I didn't have to repeat the errors that they made. And, and that's a good way, thing to become a student of human behavior for that reason. And if you like to learn from other people's mistakes, learn this big one. Because the most crucial mistake that humanity makes is this. They were guilty of it 2,000 years ago, and they're guilty of it today. We have this capacity to bring God's holiness down to our standard. God says, perfection is me. Measure everything against my standard, and yet we bring things down to the human standard. The flaw in the thinking is this, that God is less holy than he is, and that he's more tolerant of sin than he clearly says that he is. That's the flaw, and as a people, we vastly underestimate the holiness of God. So consequently, there's no felt need for Jesus. Let me just show you God's holiness. If you've always wondered, what does God talk about? There's multiple places in the Bible when he talks about his holiness, but here's just two of them. Exodus 15, 11. Majestic in his holiness, awesome in his praises, working wonders, or Leviticus 11.44, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's holiness is his complete separation from everything that's sinful. But because people think that God is less holy than he is, and that they're more holy than they really are, they're very likely to believe they can achieve acceptance by God. So humans measure God by human standards, and that's really dangerous. You have to go to God's Word to be able to measure Him. And if you want to see what a human looks like in the presence of God, you only have to go to God's Word. I'm just going to paint a picture for you, and then I'm going to put a verse up on the screen in just a moment. But here's the picture. Here's the background. I think in the Bible, probably among the top five most notable individuals who walked with God as a holy individual, you'd have to say Isaiah's in the group. Probably put Noah in there, probably put Daniel in there, but Isaiah, I mean, in the New Testament, most people look back at Isaiah and quoted him constantly, prophet among prophets. So God allows, according to Isaiah chapter 6, for Isaiah to be caught up into his presence. We're not told how it happened, just that it happened. And he records things in Isaiah 6 like this. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon his throne, and the train of his robe, it filled the entire temple, meaning God's so awesome that the train of his robe is massive and it filled all of the surrounding area. And he said, I saw the seraphim and the cherubim flying through the sky, and they were glowing orange, and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he said, at the sound of their voice, the heavens shook, and the foundations of the temple trembled, and smoke filled the room. And then this, from this verse in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a dead man. 
I'm in the presence of the Holy One, and I'm not holy because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in that moment, no one needed to tell Isaiah, you're not perfect, Isaiah, because he knew it. Whoa. God's awesome, and I'm not. What do I do about this? See, the danger is this. A really weak view of God's holiness brings a weak view of his judgment. You need to hear that again? A weak view of God's holiness brings a weak view of his judgment. And when we lower God, we put ourselves in a really dangerous place. Here's the danger going on in the church today, and I don't mean new hope, I mean around the world. There is so much emphasis on the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. And it's awesome to focus on the love of God, but it's done at the expense of his perfect holiness. God is love. To the degree people actually make bumper stickers about it. It says, love wins. The last time I checked, Jesus wins. Amen? I'm just drawing you into my rant, okay? Sorry. It's his holiness that everything has to be measured against. So not only is God perfect, he demands perfection of us. Look with me on the screen at what we started with, circling all the way back around, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do I get that? How do I hit that standard? If perfection is the only standard acceptable to God, can I get there apart from the grace of God? No. So Paul says this is what they're missing, and he ends it with verse 4. If you've got your Bible open, you might even want to circle the word for in verse 4. He says, here's the reason they're wrong, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The reason they're wrong is the way they're looking for perfection. I know your Bible doesn't have a dot, dot, dot. I inserted that. Sorry, it's the gospel according to Kring. I just needed to take a breath there, right? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Big breath. (gasps) Oh, yeah, that's right. He is the end of my struggle. I don't have to keep trying to be perfect. You're not perfect and you won't be. Jesus has to make you perfect. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And the only way to find righteousness is Jesus. He's the end of the law. The law was just given as the signpost. It was supposed to point the way to Jesus. It'd be like leaving here this morning and deciding, you know what? I want to go to Mackinac today. So you jump on 127 and you drive up 127 north. And when you get north of Clare, about two miles north of Clare, there's this massive sign that says, Mackinac, this way. But what if you pulled your car over and just sat underneath the sign and said, I'm here. There's a sign. It says it. Well, you'd be greatly mistaken. It's just pointing the way. It's not actually Mackinac. That's the law. The law was pointing the way. It was never the actual destination. The destination is Jesus. He's the end of the struggle. 
So I think if Paul was writing to us today, and vicariously is because the Holy Spirit moved him to write to the entire church, here's what I think he'd say to New Hope this morning. Stop trying to achieve a false perfection. The reign of the law is ended. You're no longer under law. You're under grace. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? Let me back that up. (laughs) Romans 6.14. For you're not under the law, but you're under grace. There's an old song that was sung in the church probably for 100 years plus. It's called Rock of Ages. Every once in a while, Michael resurrects it here. Um, The guy who wrote it, A.M. Top Lady, he really captured a, a brilliant phrase in the second stanza. He said, when it comes to the issue of the cross, I don't bring anything to the table. I want you to see his actual quote. You're gonna see it on the screen. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. In other words, you don't bring it. God brings it. So the one thing that God requires of you this morning, church, the one thing that he asks of you is that you would stop trying to earn what you can only receive as a free gift of God. I'm telling you, don't overlook the importance of the end of verse 4. It's a very powerful statement there. Because he says, it's for everyone who believes. He says, it's for everyone. Now catch the conundrum here. Paul says it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. You catching that? It's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. It's to everyone who believes. So it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone. You got to believe. Only to those who believe. Paul knows this issue really, really well because he lives that world. It was previously his own condition. This morning, 2018, June, you got a big social circle. Times you, times the previous service, times the service that was here at Saturday night, we represent a lot of connectivity. We know a lot of people collectively. God has placed you in the social circle that you're in for a reason. Your friends and your family in your social circle who have not yet found Jesus, they're watching you. It's very likely that like Paul understood his people, you understand your people in a way that others don't. That's a reason they're your friends, your family members, you know them. And few people understand your friends better than you do, meaning this you're very likely the greatest representation of Jesus they're ever going to meet. (gasps) Scary, right? What? (sighs) Somebody said to me after the Saturday night service last night, I've never heard that before. That is such a heavy weight you put on me. Well, I didn't do that. I'm Holy Spirit, but I understand. You're very likely the greatest representation of Jesus your circle is ever going to see. And you know what's even more intimidating? When you read about Paul and the way he went at it, his desire for their salvation is really genuine. And here's the struggle. His appearances are really strong. It's like, wow, this guy's got it. Look at how smart he is. Look at the way he reasons. And we think, I could never do that. I could never be that strong. Well, hear this this morning, New Hope. Before you go out the door, 
That strength of Paul, your personal strength, that can't save. Only God can save. You can't save anyone. All you can do is bring to the table that which God gifted you with, your story, your knowledge, your information. So you have to do what Paul did. Remember what he said in verse 1? My heart's desire is for my nation, and so I pray for them. Pray that God would reveal to you whose heart he's already working on. Pray that he would draw those people into relationship with him. You don't know whom God predestined. Your responsibility is to walk before them in such a way that you look like Jesus to them. I know it's a heavy weight. I'm going to pray for you that way right now. Would you join me in that? We, we would willingly say, Father, that we come to the cross empty-handed and we bring nothing to the table. We simply cling to the mercy and grace of the cross. But we don't stop there, Father. We, we recognize that we have a responsibility in this mercy and grace you've extended to us that we would extend it to others. So God, would you work through us powerfully even this week, perhaps even this afternoon? Would you reveal to us people in our social circles whom you're already working on? God, that we would be willing to engage in conversation and talk with them about these so important issues. There's nothing more important than this. So Father, we willingly submit ourselves before you and ask that you would use us. Humbly, we ask that you would use us, that in some small way, we might be used to lead others into the kingdom. That you would show mercy and grace in them in the exact same way you've shown it in us. And that we would not come haughty or arrogant, but rather humble and grateful. We praise you for what we have. We thank you for teaching us. It's in the majestic name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray and all God's people said, amen.